Thanks. Well, two weeks from today is July 1st. Now, to many people, especially many people north of us, they will be celebrating Canada Day. And some of us who live on this side will be celebrating Canada Day too. I don't want to confuse you. Yes, I am American. We've had this conversation many times. But the two most important women in my life are Canadian, my wife and my mother. And so I celebrate it as well. But July 1st is not just Canada Day. Some of you will know, especially if you happen to be a baseball fan, that July 1st is Bobby Bonilla Day. Does anybody else know what Bobby Bonilla... Where's Spencer? Spencer surely knows. Ernie knows what Bobby Bonilla Day... Okay, real quick. I know most of you don't care about baseball. It's the most boring thing you've ever seen, so I'll just spend a minute. Just, it, it matters. It, it fits with what we're talking about. Bobby Bonilla was an all-star third baseman in the 80, late 80s and 90s for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And after several stellar years with the Pirates, he did what all baseball players do now after they have a few good years. They jump to another team for a lot of money. And the team that he jumped to was the New York Mets. Okay? And the New York Mets had him for one year. He was extremely disappointing, and they decided to cut him. But he had signed a contract... And in baseball, contracts are guaranteed. And so he renegotiated his contract with the New York Mets. Now, the reason he did that is because the people who run the New York Mets had this sweet investment opportunity. They had a chance to invest millions with Bernie Madoff. And so they said, let's restructure Bobby's... I thought that would hit a little bit better. Bernie Madoff, you know, that rooked people out of billions of dollars. Well, this was before they knew he was going to do that, and they wanted to get in on this Bernie Madoff thing. So they restructured Bobby's contract so that every year from 2010 to 2035 for 25 years, every year on July 1st, the New York Mets would write Bobby Bonilla a check for $1.19 million. Yes, you heard that right. In two weeks, Bobby Bonilla, who is now 60 years old and enjoying his retirement on the coast of Florida, is going to get a check from the Mets for $1.1. That is a bad contract. Why do you renegotiate contracts? The Mets should have renegotiated. Why do you renegotiate contracts? Because they're bad. Because they're not working. I want you to keep that thought in mind. Now, we are in week 16 of our study in Hebrews, and we are looking to Jesus. We are contemplating who he is. We are contemplating what he has done. And I want to just take a moment to remind you that this is written to Jewish professing Christians. Some of them, maybe most of them, were saved. They had trusted Christ as their Savior, and they were part of the family of God. But some of them we've seen and we've talked about, and a few weeks ago I warned you to not be part of this group. Some of them were in danger of falling away, of completely rejecting Christ and turning their backs on him. Now, for these Jews, they were in danger of rejecting Christ and going back into the old system, the old way that they had been taught and the old covenant. What was that covenant? That was the covenant that God established through Moses in the book of Leviticus 
with all the sacrifices and all the washings and cleansings and celebrations, all the regulations, do this, don't do this, touch this, don't touch that, eat this, don't eat that. That was the old covenant that the Jews were a part of, and some of them were in danger of rejecting Christ and going back to that. Now, how does this apply to us? Well, not many of us, if any of us, in the room here today, are Jewish, and so we're not really in danger of falling back into that system. We certainly know that that's not the answer to our problems. There has been no debate as we built our new church building about putting a, a, a washing bowl and a sacrificial altar out in front of it. We're not worried about that. We know that's not the answer to our problems. But if we're not careful, even as Christ followers... We are in danger of falling back into the world system. What is the world system? Well, the world tells us that we're all victims. We're all victims of our genetics or our environment. And we can't help what's happened to us. And what we really need to fix our lives is, is therapy or rehabilitation or a new environment, a second chance. The Jews that the writer was giving these words to are in danger of falling back into their own system. And if we're not careful, we are in danger of slipping into the world's system, even as Christ followers, and not recognizing that what we really need is to acknowledge our sin and to take responsibility for our actions and allow Jesus Christ to transform us. And in fact, there must be, there needed to be, a new arrangement between us and God. A new covenant, a new contract, if you will, in our modern lingo. Why? Because the old one wasn't enough. The old one was not working. And that's what Jesus Christ provides. Jesus has established a new covenant for us with God. The best covenant and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, and we'll find out what God has to say about this new covenant. Now, I don't know, is anybody reading along or reading a little ahead, try to get a little sneak peek at what we're going to talk about? Anybody? Nobody? Okay, forget what I was just going to say then. Anyway, I'll say it. This section, if you have read it before, or if you are reading down through Hebrews and trying to keep up with what's going on, might seem a little complicated. So buckle up. Stay with me, please, okay? Let's look through it because when we get to the end of this, if you can, if you can follow me through our explanation of what's going on, we can see at the end there's something intensely practical. When you are reading your Bible, my friends, when you open it up, the first thing you've got to do is see what's there. You've got to observe it. You've got to read it for yourself. And then after you read it, you've got to try to determine what it means. And that's what we're going to do together here this morning. And then after we see what it means, we're going to see why it matters. Okay? So here's chapter 7 of Hebrews in verse 18. And he jumps right in, continuing from what Tim talked about last week. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. 
But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So this is what I referred to earlier, two covenants. We have the old and the new. And here he says the old one has been set aside, literally canceled. The old one has been canceled. Why? What does it say there in the verse? Because it was weak and useless. It was weak and useless. It was inadequate. It was unprofitable. The old covenant which God established with Israel through Moses was not the answer. As I referred to a few minutes ago, there were a lot of God. How many people have ever tried to read through Leviticus? How many of you have tried to tried to read through Leviticus and got through the first two chapters and said, woof, I can't do it? You know what, for all the rest of you that haven't tried to read through Leviticus, it's because it's just full of all of these regulations and all of these stipulations. And on this day, this goat has to be offered and it has to be done this way and you have to do this with the innards and you have to skin it and you have to pour the blood out and you have to burn it and then you have to wash. And if you get sick, you got to go outside the camp and you got to wash. And if you have leprosy, you have to burn your clothes and wash and go outside the camp for seven days and then you can come back and It's a whole list of things to do and to not do. Washings and restrictions and sacrifices. And I want to just say this to you, even though we don't have to abide by it now because of the new covenant that we're talking about here, it certainly wasn't wrong. It wasn't wrong at the time. It was part of God's redemptive plan. It was a necessary part of the process from before the beginning of the world. Ephesians 1, Paul says that before the beginning of the world, God set in motion this plan of redemption, and that old covenant was part of it. It revealed mankind's sin. Can you imagine? Can you imagine every week? When you came to church for them, when they came to the tabernacle and then later the temple, can you imagine before you left going out to the barn and getting a lamb and bringing it with you and standing in line out there while Tim and I and the elders sacrificed the lamb on the altar and burnt it before you could go inside and worship? Can you imagine doing that? That's what they had to do. That was the old covenant. That was part of it. It revealed mankind's sin and the need for forgiveness, but it only temporarily covered their sin. It didn't remove it. That's what he means when he says, look at verse 19, look at the first phrase. It says, for the law made nothing perfect. Now, the word perfect here, we've seen it a few times already in Hebrews. Tim referred to it a little while ago. Perfect does not mean sinless. That's not what it means. It means to bring something to completion. There is a process that needs to take place in order for this to be done. Often, Tim and I use the example of building houses. There's a process that needs to take place. You can talk with Sean and Amanda about that. They're doing it. It's a process. You come and put the foundation in, and then you build the deck, and then you put up the walls and put on the roof, and it's a process, and when it is done, it's complete, and that's what this word means here, perfect, complete. The old covenant, he said, never completed anything. It never finished what needed to be done. We needed a better covenant that results in the process being complete, where we are forgiven completely where we are saved completely, where we are made right with God 
completely. There was nothing wrong with God's law. It's holy. The problem is with us. We can't keep it. A long, long time ago, I preached a message, and maybe just the title would get me kicked out of some places. A long time ago, I preached a message, and the title of the message was, There Are Two Ways to Be Saved. (gasps) No, there's only one way. It's only through Jesus, right? Well, actually, the Bible tells us there are two ways. We can either be forgiven and saved by Jesus, or we can keep God's law perfectly and never sin our entire lives. Anybody working on that one? God's law is holy. Perfection. The problem is with us. We can't keep it. We needed a covenant based on something other than our ability to be faithful and obedient and consistent. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Now this is where it starts getting kind of, Whoa, what's he talking about here? How can we keep up with what's going on? Who is the one who was made a priest? Well, the one is Jesus. That's who he's talking about here in this chapter, of course, is the priesthood of Jesus. Now, here is what happened. Tim referred to this a little bit last week, and that is that the priests in the Old Covenant, they were born into it. The nation of Israel is made up of 12 families, and one of the families was the family or the tribe, sometimes we call it, of Levi. They were called the Levites. And all the priests came from the tribe of the Levites. Now, as the years went by, of course, and the tribe grew, the families branched out as families do. If you've ever done your Ancestry.com deal or whatever, you know all the branches branch out. And there was a branch of the tribe of Levi, the family of Levi, and that was the family of Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother. And all of the priests came from the tribe of Levi, from the branch of the family that was Aaron's. They were earmarked for priesthood if they came from that family. It was their bloodline that allowed them to be priests. Now, as you might imagine, as they went through the years, hundreds and thousands of years, that there were some good priests... And there were some bad priests. If we had time, we could look at some of the stories that would curl your hair. These guys are priests. Some of them were terrible. But this new high priest, Jesus, was different. I want to refer to a couple of verses that Tim read for us last week because this passage is all connected with what he was talking about. To backtrack to verse 14 of chapter 7, He says, it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. If you trace Jesus' ancestry, he didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He wasn't part of the family of Aaron. Moses never said anything about any priests coming from Judah. 
But listen to verse 16. Tim read these for us last week. I'm just, I know you all remember it, but I'm just reminding you. Verse 16. Jesus, who has become a priest, listen to this now, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus didn't come from a priestly line. He didn't come from the right family, but he had something else. Did you see it? Please encourage me by telling me that you saw it. Did you see it? If you... Only seven people are nodding, so the rest of you look at it. What did Jesus have? Even He didn't have the right family. He wasn't, he wasn't from the right branch of the, of the Israelite family tree, but he had something else, something amazing, something unique. What did he have? An indestructible life. Jesus was made the priest not because of his lineage, but his righteousness. And this is going to make him a very different kind of priest. We're going to talk about it here in a few minutes and next week and the week after that. Now, what do we know about that here from verse 21? Why does that matter? Notice what it says. Number one, we learn that God does not change his mind. When the Father made the Son a priest because of his indestructible life, we understand and need to know that God does not change his mind. And secondly, we need to know that God determined that his priesthood would be forever. The writer of the Hebrews is trying to build this case for us so that we understand what he's talking about, so that we understand that we should never, ever, no matter what happens, no matter how difficult things get, no matter what's going on in our lives, we should never go back to the old way. For the Jews, don't ever go back to those sacrifices. And for us, don't ever slip into the culture's uh, system that tells you, this is how we fix our lives. Don't ever go back there. God does not change his mind. His priesthood will be forever. Look at verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Remember verse 18. We had, on the other hand, this old ineffective covenant. But here we have a new one, a better one, one that depends on Jesus. That's what the word guarantor means. It just means someone who ensures that the agreement will stand. Now, why does that matter? Why does it matter that Jesus is the guarantor of this covenant? Well, the covenant depends on Jesus, and we know a lot about Jesus, don't we? If you never knew anything about Jesus, but you've been here the last 15 weeks, you should know something about Jesus now, because that's what we've been talking about, right? What do we know about Jesus? We know that he's God, we know that he's all-powerful. We know that he's sinless. We know that he's sympathetic to us in our sin. This is already a lot better covenant. Because look at verse 23. The former priests 
were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So our covenant depends on who? Not a trick question. Good. Jesus. The old covenant depended on these human priests, and they had to keep making the sacrifices. Remember, what did I say about these priests? There were good ones and there were bad ones. Guess what the bad ones didn't do? All the things that they were supposed to. They didn't make the sacrifices. They didn't do the ceremonies like they were supposed to. And by the way, these human priests, well, they were, you know, human. And what do we know about humans? All you humans out there this morning. What do we know about humans? We sin. We fail. So guess what the priests had to do? And you can go back and read this in Leviticus and Deuteronomy if you would like to. And sometime we'll help you walk through some of that stuff so you can understand it better. But guess what the priests had to do before they came and offered your sacrifice? They had to go offer a sacrifice for themselves. Because they were sinners too. And then they died because they were human beings. Can you imagine the uproar in Israel when the high priest died? He was the one who really knew us. He was the one who understood. He had been around for so long. He had done this for 40 years. And now he's gone. Now what are we going to do? They're going to bring some new high priest up. We don't even know this kid. Does he know what he's doing? Is he going to be able to do the sacrifices right? Is he going to be able to lead us the way that we need to so that we can have fellowship with God? Who knows? We're going to have to wait and see. And they had to start all over again. But Jesus, his priesthood, I want you to notice the verse that is there in verse 24, or the word, rather. His priesthood is permanent. It's permanent. Now, by this, we don't mean that it's incidentally permanent or it's not going to be terminated like, hey, we're going to let Jesus be the priest permanently. The word actually means inviolable, literally unchangeable. It is impossible for the priesthood of Jesus to end. Why? Because he lives forever. And that should be comforting. It should be comforting to us. The fact that Jesus Christ never changes, that he is our high priest, that he lives forever, that God cannot change his mind and does not change his mind, should be a comfort to us. Speaking of books that are difficult to understand, if you read the book of Revelation and you read chapter 1, God is going to reveal to John all of the things that are going to happen in the future. And it's terrifying. And John is terrified. Even in chapter 1, before God's even told him anything, John is terrified. It's very interesting in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. Listen to what John says. 
When I saw him, that is Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me and saying, fear not. So Jesus comforts John and he says, fear not. Now I want you to notice how he comforts him and why he tells John not to fear. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, listen my friends, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Isn't that interesting? John's terrified. And how does Jesus comfort him? I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to life and death. Because he continues forever. Look at verse 25. Back in Hebrews 7. Consequently... He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Because Jesus lives forever, because his role as our high priest never ends, it's literally unchangeable, we have the best covenant. Not just a better one, but the best one possible for these two reasons. I want you to see them. They're right there in verse 25. For reason number one, he has the ability to save us to the uttermost. The word uttermost here means completely or once and for all or forevermore. Jesus takes care of our sin problem completely. I want you to take a moment. And I want you to think about your past. Let me ask you this question. Any sin back there? In your past? Hmm? Christ takes care of it. He forgives it. And the psalmist tells us that he buries it in the deepest ocean. Now let me ask you this question. Do you ever revisit back there? Do you ever revisit your sin? Feel guilt or shame? Listen to me now. That is the work of Satan. That's the work of Satan. It's one of his favorite tactics to try and get you to doubt the love of God and the effectiveness of your salvation. If you are going back there in the past and reliving your sin and feeling guilt and shame because of it, that is not God. Because in his mind, it is done, it is over, it is finished finished because he saves us completely so he has the ability to save us to the uttermost here's the second thing we learn in that verse he always lives to intercede for us he makes intercession for us that literally means to approach on behalf of others Another question, 
Let's forget about what's back there before we came to Christ. But let me ask you this. How many of you have been completely sin-free since you got saved? (laughs) Me neither. But Jesus intercedes for us currently, presently, now, right now, in this moment, while we are here, Christ is interceding for us. He has approached the throne of God on our behalf. Not only is our past sin gone, but our current sin is forgiven. That's what this means. How many of you have ever heard somebody pray like this? Or maybe you've prayed like this. Oh, Lord, if at some point in the past week, I don't know, past few days, If I've done anything wrong, please forgive me. Really? If you've done anything wrong in the past week, seriously? Come on, people. We need to wake up. We sin daily, don't we? We sin daily. But because Jesus is our high priest forever, because his priesthood never changes, because he saves us completely and he intercedes for us, that sin is forgiven as well. Listen to, listen to this verse. This is 1 John 2.1. John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Look, I'm not saying that it's good that we still sin. I don't mean to joke about it or make light of it. Yeah, well, still sinning. Still sinning over here. How about you, Joellen? Yeah, still sinning. Yeah, Ern, still sinning. Yeah, okay. I didn't even give him a chance to answer because I know him really well. Um, I'm not making light of it. It's not a good thing that we still sin. John says, I'm writing this to you so that you wouldn't sin. It would be great if we didn't sin, correct? And we should make every effort by the grace of God to not sin. But if we do, what? Jesus intercedes for us. What amazing, incredible, unbelievable grace. This is crazy. How can this be? It shouldn't be. Agreed. I'm trying to tell you, this is the best covenant. It's like being Bobby Bonilla on July 1st, only for the rest of your, every day of your life. Christ has provided for you and me the best covenant. And if you are saved, you're saved forevermore. Because God doesn't change his mind and because God, Christ's priesthood lasts forever and because he saves us completely and because he always lives to intercede for us and because it all depends on him and not on you. And in case you're struggling to get it or you're processing this, I want to answer this question one more time fully and finally. Why does this matter? Why does this complicated, confusing, layered, nuanced passage in Hebrews chapter 7 matter? Let me give you three reasons why this new covenant matters for your life right now, today, whatever is happening 
if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Here's number one. Are you ready? Number one, God's desire for you doesn't fluctuate even when your desire for him does. None of this depends on your feelings or your consistency, and that is a good thing because I'm telling you, some of you are up and down and in and out and all over the place, aren't you? From one day to the next, you're riding the mountaintop and then you're digging ditches in the valley. But God is consistent, and he never changes his mind. Remember, we just read that. God does not change his mind, and he does not change his mind about you, ever. Secondly, this matters because every part of your life matters to God. Remember the word uttermost from verse 25? And I told you that it means completely and once and for all and forevermore. Well, I held one back because I wanted to share it with you right now. It also carries with it this shade of meaning, entirely, entirely. In other words, Jesus saves you and cares about all of you, every aspect of your life, every area of your life cares about the spiritual part of your life and the mental part of your life and the emotional part of your life and the relational part of your life and the sexual part of your life and the financial part of your life. Every part of it he cares about. And he has a plan for every part of your life. He wants to redeem every part of your life. To truly walk with Jesus Christ and enjoy what he has done for us means that we don't get drunk on Saturday night and come to church on Sunday morning and say, all is well between me and God. I don't tell my children they need to watch what they do online and then go home and look at pornography. I don't put money in the offering plate and then go home and gamble online or whatever it is because God cares about every part of your life and when Jesus saves you he saves you entirely he wants all of it and he can redeem all of it and use all of it for his glory The third reason why all this matters is this. It matters because it means you never walk alone. Whatever is happening in your life, Jesus Christ is there with you. When life starts closing in, he's there. When you feel like you're drowning, he's there. When you need to be reminded that you are free, he's there. That you're no longer a slave to your old way and the old patterns of life, he is there. I didn't draw your attention to this phrase earlier, but I want to do so now. Way back in verse 19, one of the first verses we read, it said, The law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. Please listen to this phrase, through which, listen, we draw near to God. We draw near to God. 
the best part of this new covenant, unlike the old one, when the Israelites drew near to the priest, they were just drawing near to another dude that had the same struggles that they did. But when we draw near, when we confess our need for forgiveness, when we beg Jesus for grace, we are drawing near to God. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in my life or yours, that's for sure. But I know one thing. Jesus Christ will be there.